uh, when my internet home broke and the um, guy came to fix it and said, um, I think a squirrel is chewing on your internet. Uh, and I realized that if you know if squirrels could chew on the piece of the internet behind my building, there had to be other pieces of the internet that squirrels could chew on. Hello and welcome to episode 187 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. From the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Lisa Gonzalez. The internet has become so ingrained in our lives, we rarely think about its physical structure. In 2012, Andrew Blum published Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. His book brings us into that unseen world that we often forget about until something goes wrong. In this interview, Andrew and Chris discuss his motivation for writing the book, some of the surprising things he learned along the way, and the unrestrained nature of the Internet itself. Here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, we strive to bring you quality resources like the Community Broadband Bits podcast, and we do it with no advertising. If you're one of our listeners, you appreciate the unique information we offer, and you understand that there's very few places to get this information. Please take a moment to donate at ILSR.org or MuniNetworks.org to help us continue to bring you accurate, interesting, quality information. Any amount helps. Now here's Chris talking with Andrew Blum, author of Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm speaking with Andrew Blum, the author of Tubes, A Journey to the Center of the Internet. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. Uh, you and I had talked around the time the book came out. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I should have had you on four years ago. But, um, <laughs> That's okay. Thank but it's you. great to catch up because the Internet hasn't changed much physically, I think. No, no, that's true. It's keeps its structure is pretty much the same, I think. And how would you describe the book just briefly for people who hadn't heard of it? Um, you know, what is the what are they going to get out of reading your book? Uh, the book is the chronicle of my visit to the Internet. Um, in particular, I kind of focused on the uh, not just the data centers, which I think are the kind of the pieces of the Internet's infrastructure that are most familiar, uh, but the Internet exchange points, the places where networks physically connect to each other. Uh, and the kind of the lines in between, um, you know, the the terrestrial fiber networks that are that are probably more obvious, but also the the undersea cables across the oceans um, that recently have kind of come to more prominence, but were certainly forgotten for a lot of years. Um, and uh, and then I try to communicate some of why it's important to understand what these places are and how they fit together. And more importantly, I think, uh, who puts them together and what companies own them and uh, what the consequences are for those questions. I think for people who may not be as familiar with how the Internet works, this is a, a great introduction. Um, you know, I think you have a background in architecture and an interest in how things are made. Um, I kind of think of it as, you know, maybe if 99% Invisible had uh, that famous podcast, if they had a book, uh, maybe this is what it would look like. Um, Good. Thanks. Good. So, um, so anyway, I'm, you know, I think you, you tell the story at the beginning of the book, but um, you you have a you're a bit of a tech savvy person, but I don't think you knew all that much about how the internet worked and what got you interested in writing the book. There were there were kind of two main things: one sort of macro and one kind of micro. Uh, I mean, the the macro scene. It was you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Uh, it was the kind of the the beginning of the of the the Great Recession. Uh, I was writing mostly for Wired, um, for Wired magazine, mostly about kind of big infrastructure, about you know um, airports and and skyscrapers and things like that, uh, and started poking around, uh, looking at the at the broadband stimulus funding with this idea that 
if there's this whole conversation about uh, putting shovels in the ground, that was the big refrain of the government stimulus across all things, you know, shovels in the ground, that was going to get the country going. The idea of shovels in the ground and, and broadband was not, uh, not something that I had connected in my head in a long time. You know, as I understood it, within the fiber boom in the you know in the early early two thousands, the internet was built, and that was that. And you know, I'd read a couple of articles about you know Google's mysterious data centers, and but but otherwise, there just was no conversation about it. Uh, even even at Wired, you know, even at Wired, we'd kind of forgotten about the wires. I've noticed that hasn't changed, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. Although now, yeah, although of course now the you know it's been subsumed by the conversation about the the cloud. You know, it's right. it's, it's replaced by different things and. The NSA, which is another topic, but both, but also relevant. The micro thing that happened that kind of focused me was um, one. It's actually it's a kind of January day like today. It's exactly um, exactly seven years ago, I guess, uh, when my internet at home broke. Uh, I'm a Cablevision customer in Brooklyn, and the um, guy came to fix it um, and uh, went behind my building to kind of see what was going on, uh, and saw a squirrel running along a wire and said. Um, you know, and this kind of question that sort of uh, sort of changed my life was, um, I think I think a squirrel is chewing on your internet, uh, and I realized that if if um, you know if squirrels could chew on the piece of the internet behind my building, there had to be other pieces of the internet that squirrels could chew on. There had to be something physical there, and just developed this this framework of kind of yanking the cable from the wall and just trying to figure out where where it went, um, with the idea that it had to go someplace. Um, I remember very early on talking to my editor. We both, again, we were kind of tech savvy. We thought we knew how the internet worked. We thought it was, you know, messages were broken up into parts and then reassembled. And I'd realized that in the idea of 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 uh, information traveling over many paths across the internet, we kind of had begun to believe it didn't travel any over any paths at all. Um, you know, in kind of saying that there there were many, we kind of assumed that meant really there were none. Um, when in fact that wasn't true at all. There had to be a physical path and. You know, probably fewer physical paths than certainly I, I, I expected when I when I when I started the project. Right. Well, that's one of the things that I found interesting was that you found the internet was more centralized than you had had expected from what you'd learned about over the years. Uh, you know, I wanted to say it's squirrels and sharks, right? It's like the, yeah, the two yeah. S's. <laughs> the sharks, the sharks, uh, sharks are a bit apocryphal. I think the squirrels are real. The squirrels have their own Twitter handle now. You know, Cyber Squirrel. Oh no, I had yeah. not seen that. I'll have to yeah, check that squirrel, out. Squirrel Liberation Army. Yeah, it's actually quite good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I guess what I'm curious about then is how you describe it to people in terms of how does the internet work. Mm-hmm. The last mile is the piece most people are, are familiar with because it's where they where they pay for it. You know, they pay their cable company. They interact with the the cable repair person. You know, they're 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 they're, they're aware of their speeds, so their cellular or or or, or cable or, or DSL or, or or maybe fiber. Um, the part that I think is more surprising to people uh, are the spaces in between networks and the connections between networks of the internet, um, the kind of inter and internet. Um, there's the basic idea that the internet's a network of networks, uh, and those networks have to meet somewhere. Um, they have to be connected by someone. Um, you know, once that connection is made, yes, things do kind of run automatically, but it has to be physically made and configured uh, by hand. Um, and it turns out that the places uh, where those net connections are made, where networks connect one to another, are relatively few and far between. That they're they're pretty specialized. Uh, they have a, a certain scale of geography where you you just don't want them in every city. Uh, you may not even want one of these places in every state. Um, they're really kind of regional places where networks connect to each other uh, that we call internet exchange points. Um, 
carrier hotels is kind of another word for it, but that doesn't quite capture the the um, the kind of more vivid uh, and deliberate and kind of chaotic activity that goes on in the big internet exchange points where lots of networks are connecting to to each other. I think it's worth also acknowledging that the word network is a bit fuzzy. Um, you know, a network could be something like Google or Facebook or YouTube, um, or, or I should say Amazon or or, or, um, or any any of our big favorites. Um, but a network could also be a small regional ISP, um, or a network could even be a very large law firm, or basically any anyone that runs their own their own AS, any, any autonomous system, anyone who sort of declares themselves an independent network on the internet. For the most part, we kind of live inside the internet, the networks of our ISPs. Um, but uh, more and more, uh, you do see um, sort of uh, large businesses, and certainly um, for a long time, you know, universities and government agencies all acting as autonomous networks on the internet uh, and managing their connections between each other uh, really by hand. Right, and I think one of the interesting um, sort of tugs and in, in, um, over the history of this is is that whether we're becoming more centralized or more decentralized, because mm-hmm. you know I worry as Comcast has grown from being a small cable company before the anyone knew about the internet to what it is today. Um, you know, it's taken over many what formerly had been autonomous systems and made it into effectively one the Comcast system, and we've mm-hmm. seen the the same thing with you know we had once. You know what? Almost ten thousand CLEX, these these local ISPs, and almost all of them were run out of business. Um, and, and at the same time, we do see these these other corporate networks, um, you know, coming out and and developing the autonomous um, system, having their own, um, getting their own numbers effectively. I mean, the thing for me that I find so amazing is how parts of this are very formal and parts of it are really informal. You know, you talk about how these are very important networks and how they trade information in, in these internet exchange points, which are often just abbreviated the IXPs. If people have seen that term around. Mm-hmm. One of the things I find amazing is you talk about, you know, some of those big routers, they've got 160 ports, and then you, you juxtapose it, I think, with just the handshake agreements that basically, you know, make them come alive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw that uh, in the time that I spent inside the the Nanog community, Nanog being the North American Network Operators Group. I think it's actually, in the last couple of years, has become more formalized. The stakes have gotten a little bit bigger. Um, but until very recently, uh, you know, they, it was about the peering coordinator uh, of one network sort of having a beer and, you know, trusting and, and, you know, trusting from a technical standpoint, basically from a geek standpoint, you know, trusting the, the, the technical capability of, of their, their, their counterpart at another network, um, and then recognizing that they each had a business case for connecting to each other. Um, sometimes that business case would be sweetened by one becoming the customer of another, um, but otherwise, we say we might be like you know we have lots of eyeballs. You know we've got lots of we're an ISP. We've got lots of customers who need your content. You know you're a content provider. Uh, you need to get your content to customers. And hey, we both have a a presence at one of you know one of a handful of of internet exchange points. And why don't we um why don't we basically string a cable from from my cage and and my router to your cage and your router. Um, for which we'll probably have to pay a fee to our landlord, you know, and pay for the cost of configuring it. But once that happens, then then the internet's kind of ours, you know. Then our one, my network's connected to yours, and we don't have to pay anybody, uh, you know, anything to to move our traffic around um, if we're in those places. One of the things that I find really interesting 
is how that gives you a certain kind of control that you wouldn't otherwise have. I mean, if we imagine a three network setup where you and I want to connect and we're currently maybe connected through the third network, that of the listener, um, but we don't have any control. I mean, if I send something through the listener's network, maybe it takes a while to get you. You know, maybe I have to retransmit half of the packets because there's a quality issue or, you know, there's just packets are being dropped from congestion. But if you and I interconnect, which we can basically do by just having two machines in the same building and then we can work everything out between us, we have total control. Yeah. Uh, and the thing that also kills me on top of that is if we have a great idea for a business, we're on the internet, right? We didn't right. have to get permission from Comcast or others. I mean, um, at a certain point, if we're Netflix, then Comcast could try and shake us down. But the freedom there is remarkable. It is. And I mean, I, I was amazed that among the network engineers, you know, they had they were constrained by their sort of business overlords in different ways. You know, they were all private companies. I mean, there's no such thing as a public company on the Internet, you know, as a, as a good rule of thumb, um, with, the, with very few exceptions. So you all have pri- private companies all trying to make their money in different ways. If, if they recognize that there's a need, f- you know, that it's worthwhile for them to exchange their traffic, then they're, they're going to do it. Um, if it's worth, you know, spending the other kind of, you know, sunk costs of, you know, buying the hardware and, the, and you know, other things like that, you know, and that, that can happen in all sorts of uh, surprising ways. Uh, but again, as long as the physical infrastructure is there, as long as there are places available that are neutral where you don't have other ISPs um, and other big, you know, big networks kind of breathing down people's throats and trying to extract their cut of things, um, then there is the freedom for things to, to go a little crazy and for the internet to the, the networks of the internet to connect in, in, in ways you might not expect. Do you think that the sort of lack of knowledge that I think most people have and that uh, you, you probably had before you wrote the book, does that impact how we deal with policy, how we try to solve this problem of getting more people, higher quality internet connectivity? Undoubtedly. I mean, there, you know, it, it comes up most clearly in the, the different net neutrality conversations. It always amazed me that until very recently, interconnection was not a part of the net neutrality conversation. The assumption was, you know, it's all about the, you know, it's all about the last mile. It's all about what your cable company is and isn't doing uh, with no sense, particularly as bandwidth, um, you know, bandwidth has grown, you know, mostly from video and demand has grown so much with, with no sense of the different, the, the other bottlenecks that might, you know, that there might exist in the system, you know, not between your, you know, ISP and, you know, and your cable box, uh, but maybe, maybe between your ISP and, and Netflix or, or Amazon, whoever it is. Uh, and, you know, recently we've, we've become more aware of some of those, you know, some of those bottlenecks, you know, but it just, it just wasn't, I mean, again, in Tim Wu's book about net neutrality, the word peering and interconnection does not appear. In the master switch? In the master switch, yes. You know, and, and, and in the earlier, in his book with Jonathan Zittrain about net neutrality, it, it doesn't, it just, it doesn't come up. It wasn't part of the conversation. It was about the last mile. And I think that, that, that the, the dominance of that and the quietness of the peering community um, had set us back a, a certain number of years in the in the in the network policy conversation. Um, I will say that I think that's changed dramatically in the last you know three four years. I think we've right. it's, it's really started to enter the conversation, and you know, and and then you see things get more public, and uh, like with um you know night like with Comcast and Netflix, uh, or now that uh, Tim Wu is working for the Attorney General, you know, now you see um he's he's demanded the 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 paperwork behind the peering agreements that should be very exciting to see. Um, right. that's that's going to make a difference, I think. 
there's these broad trends on both the left and the right. There's sort of subsections of the left and the right that deeply care about decentralizing. And I think the people who built the internet had some of those on both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. And they really cared about, you know, this decentralized technology. Mm -hmm. And in recent years, we've had this more centralizing influence, both from government and from these large companies like Comcast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think to some extent, people maybe didn't see interconnection being a problem because they didn't really think that when you squeeze the balloon, Comcast is going to find a way of popping out elsewhere and, and creating those issues. Um, and, and, and part, I'm just wondering, what, what have you seen in the IXP space? Because, you know, when you say there might only be one in a city and that might be enough, I'm kind of curious if that is enough. One other piece with the consolidation and the concerns with that, it's not just the consolidation of the big companies, it's the lack of transparency. Um, and I think for me, that's become really important. I, I, um, I'm on the internet history um, listserv uh, that's run... Um, I think out of, uh, I guess maybe it's out of Berkeley, but it's a, it's a I, I don't know how big it is, but it's a weird thing because whenever somebody asks a, a question about internet history, um, you know, like all of, you know, the self-declared sort of founding fathers of the internet write back right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was recently a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a stir um, about the series of articles that uh, Ingrid Burrington did in the Atlantic about internet infrastructure. Um, her refrain being, you know, I, I was shut out, I was shut out, I had to search out these places, they're secret, they're secret, they're secret. And you know, being um, the, the the response on the list, uh, you know, was uh, she doesn't know what she's talking about, um, and that's false. Uh, and it completely missed the forest for the trees. With that, the, the the point is that we don't know where these places are. The point is that these places are obscured. The point is that you know, if you're a founding father of the internet and you work for Google, uh, you know, you're 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 not helping the case of internet history if you're if if there's a culture of secrecy around all around around all internet infrastructure. So I so I I just want to really point out that I do think the lack of transparency um, is as if not more important than the than the consolidation uh, among the networks. To some of, some of the extent, I always wonder if that's some. Some of that is an issue of just natural, well, I know where it is, and, and the people that I associate with know where it is, so it's mm-hmm. not a secret. But then there's also a sense of, I don't really want other people to know where it is because my source of power is this unique knowledge, right? It's like being a knight and and having, and I know things that other people don't know or being a part of a secret order. Yeah. You think there's some of that as well? We can talk all day about the uh, about the, the psychology of the, of, of, of the network. Um, I think that the these businesses have gotten so big now um and they're um and they are they're lucrative for their employees um you know and and they're the there's a there's the sense that it's an important strategic advantage to keep all these numbers secret and i'm talking about at the biggest level so the amazons and the googles and things like that um and um and it's such a small pool of people who deal with these interconnection agreements uh, and they all go from company to company to company to company. And I've seen that over the last you know, five, six years, how they kind of rotate through the same list of companies. Um, and there's a lot at stake for them personally. Um, I don't blame them that. Uh, but I do think that um, we start with a long time where nobody was asking the questions. And now we have a, a lot of people asking questions about how this happens, you know, how, how these networks fit together and where data centers are and why they are there and how many, what's in them and all of that. Um, but we we just we we still are are facing a, a, a uphill um, you know uphill struggle to get the companies to, to sort of open up about about what's inside of them and, and and what happens. And by the companies, you mean basically any of these companies that are that are moving large bits of traffic that are involved in the interconnection agreements. Yes, those are the companies absolutely. you're talking about. Absolutely. And again, you know, if Tim Wu's demanded as you know, assistant attorney general, this we hear more about this. You know, that's you know, this is this is the the need. 
to open up these issues um, in order to, uh, frankly, increase the freedom of the internet, um, I think is really important. Um, I think it's also, I mean, this is a little bit controversial, but for a long time, the net neutrality and the internet freedom conversations have been dominated by um, by some of these big companies, um, you know, and I think um, that's that's been a bit of a drag on the conversation. Um, so it's it's the consolidation not only of the you know of the networks themselves, but the consolidation of the kind of intellectual space around um, around these things. It's I mean, it's one reason I've the the community network piece has always been such a thrill for me because it's exactly this sort of glorious idea that anyone can be a network on the internet if you can just build it. Um, and for me, the key to the key counter to all of um, all of the pressures of of um, of a lack of transparency and a consolidation um, is the friction of of many networks. You know, this, you know, as long as no, one network doesn't get too big, you have a you have you have you have more freedom on the internet. I mean, I think I think that's a that's a sort of physical corollary to a lot of the, the policy conversations that, that we talk about. And that's where I, I want to get back to a, a comment that you were making in terms of the number of IXPs one might yeah, have. And yeah. I, I certainly, I mean, I, I just think here in you know, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul, we have one. And um, and it's, you know, like so many of them, it's named by its address, which uh, makes it easier to find someone. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, it's one. And, uh, and it strikes me that there would be a danger of someone um, who could take ownership of it or in some way spoil it so that it wouldn't be, it would be hostile to newcomers perhaps. And I would like to see many IXPs. And, you know, it's sort of one of my thoughts. And I'm curious if there's a trade-off to that or how I might think about it. Well, I mean, there are examples of of, of a change in ownership causing a constriction of, of opportunities for interconnection. I mean, the most notable would be the Google building in New York, 111 8th Avenue. Um, you know, when they bought it in 2010, I guess it is, it was the largest real estate transaction of the year in America, two-something two billion dollars. Um, it was you know, it wasn't acknowledged publicly that that the interconnection piece was a very important part of that deal. Um, they said they wanted it for the office space. They have indeed filled it up with office space, um, but they have, uh, by all accounts, had a chilling effect on that as an internet exchange point. Um, although they're such a good customer of so many of the big networks, it kind of you know kind of kind of shuffles out. Um, so that's an example of a major in exchange point um, losing its neutrality. Um, a very prominent example, um, and there's been a lot of Consolidation among the IXP um, operators. Um, um, Equinex has been growing remarkably. Uh, Telex um, was just bought by Digital Realty Trust. Before that, Equinex had bought Switch and Data. It's there, there's a kind of um, shrinking of the number of players in that space. I don't have a sense of um, uh, of what kind of chilling effect, if any, that has. I know, for example, at 350 East Cermak in Chicago, um, you know, which is kind of the the biggest internet exchange point in the in in the middle of the country, not on the coast. The building itself was owned by Digital Realty, and Telex operated the Meet Me Room, uh, the places where actually the networks in the building connected to each other, the kind of patch panel. Um, now that Digital Realty owns Telex wholesale, that you lose that tension between the Meet Me Room and the the building itself. Um, Equinex is also a customer in that building, um, although that situation is replicated other places. For me, as there's vertical integration between the internet exchange operators and the data center space, uh, that that begins to, to call into question the whole model. And uh, I don't know how that's playing out yet. It's all pretty new, I'd say. Um, and I'm a little bit, I'm not, I'm not following it as, as well as I used to. And I'm, I'm not, that's, that stuff. I'm, it's kind of more backroom stuff that I'm, I'm not as privy to if I ever was. So. Well, let's get back into you know some of the the work you did and the conversations you yeah. had as a result of it. And I'm I'm always curious how did did you have any memorable reactions when you were describing the actual geography of the internet to people? 
I mean, I just sort of imagine a number of people thinking, well, that just seems way more amateurish than I imagined, right? I mean, just, yeah. it's, 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 it's a wild west. And, and you know, we oh, yeah, discussed yeah. ways in which it's less so today, but it's still remarkably for, you know, the thing that's sweeping and changing all commerce on the face of the planet. It's <laughs> remarkable. The thing that, that comes up in every single conversation, every single event um, is, you know, how do we destroy the internet? Or isn't, you know, <laughs> won't, if we talk about these places, won't somebody blow them up? Um, and I used to joke when I was doing it, when I was talking about the the book and the topic a lot, or basically daily. You know, they say like now's the time of now, you know, now's the part of my day where we talk about destroying the internet. Like this, you know, this, this happens every single day. Um, and it was always, it was for me, it was, you know, that that people's surprise at its apparent vulnerability was actually a strength. Um, you know, you can't, you know, the first you can't you can't you can't protect it by hiding it. You have to protect it by acknowledging it. Um, you know, there are plenty of places that are that are targets for destruction but are very public in fact most sort of major targets for destruction you know god forbid are very public that's why they're targets for destruction yeah because of the number of people yeah the number yeah. of people and the and the symbolic prominence mm-hmm. um so the internet has has always lacked um symbols of infrastructure um so it hasn't it hasn't had that piece um uh, I think that I kind of like to see that change. It'd be fun if uh, you know if these if these major interconnection points were celebrated as such, and and certainly they are becoming more public. And uh, you know, I've always dreamt about like a uh, you know internet sort of brewery tours. You know, where you like get to go see a data center and you know <laughs> you know pl- you know plug in. And I think we're getting a little bit closer to that. Um, the most interesting ex- exchanges I've had from people over the last couple of years uh, have been with the reporters um, who have been following the Snowden story, um, some of whom, and working with the Snowden documents, um, and have you know this this amazing cache um, of documents, and that they're trying to to make line up with an understanding of the internet's infrastructure, uh, and that was it was surprising to me um, because it. It indicated um, less the capability um, or the reach of the NSA uh, and more um, the the um, the kind of the the lack of of understanding on anyone's part about how this all fits together and and what's what's really going on from a technical standpoint and how extensive um, and uh, overreaching or not different kinds of government tapping was um, and I think that you know that's that's a uh, the the um, the anarchicness of of the internet uh, I think. Um, is a kind of a, a, a um, reassuring for for anyone critical of government tapping because it gives the internet a, a bit of a wild west that doesn't make it seem like it's just an AT and T operated network, uh, and um, and I think opens things up again. I mean, again, the the the, the free internet is the, is the diverse internet. I want to go back to an area that I really loved about your book, uh, which is uh, talk about municipal network. Yeah, of <laughs> sort of. Yeah, you know my my bread and butter, and um, and you talk about you know I mean I you go back. It's really quite amazing the role of government at all levels of government in this in terms of the great uh, the great dams of the Northwest that were built by the federal government, uh, providing low cost electricity for data centers, and and then uh, in this case, um, well, tell me about the Dalles in Oregon. Yeah, the Dalles was uh, was one of my favorite sort of uh, trips and visits, uh, you know, on, on my kind of journey to the internet. I mean, the uh, the Dalles um, is the the 
town uh, on the Columbia River on the border between Oregon and Washington, um, just at the, at the on the kind of other side of the of the Columbia River Gorge from Portland. Um, and it's this kind of infrastructural sort of pinch point because it's where the railroad goes through. It's where the interstate interstate goes through. Um, and then not coincidentally at all, it's where um, Google built its first ground up data center um, in secret, uh, not secret for very long. I think a real watershed moment in the history of the Internet's infrastructure was the, the front page story of the New York Times kind of speculating about why Google was building a quote unquote factory in this place? You know, what did this mean? That was our kind of introduction to these uh, to these giant data centers. I think that was two thousand six. That article, and but one of the major questions I had was, okay, why there? You know, what what about this place um, is there? Is it cheap power? Is it cooling? Uh, and it turned out a big piece of the equation um, was the municipal fiber network there, known as QLife. Um, that had been built um, by the town in, in 2002 on a, on, you know, on a bit of a whim, kind of because they could, uh, and sort of turned increasingly depressed industrial community uh, into a kind of famous landmark on the on the internet. Um, you know, it was many years before they anyone acknowledged that Google was in town. There was no sign on the building. I think until uh, 2012 or 2013, um, the building was smudged out of Google's uh, you know online maps. Um, in a, a sort of astonishing example of you know those who makes them th- those who make the maps having the power, um, uh, but all of that has changed and there's a, a lot more acknowledgement of uh, of the Dallas as a kind of important internet infrastructure hub, uh, not you know for for the region really. Right, and I think some of the stuff we're seeing now is that. Um, um, we're seeing, I think, more data centers moving toward cooling areas, right? I mean, yeah. uh, like um, you got the uh, potential for uh, Iceland and um, and some of the Scandinavian countries, maybe. Yeah. Um, if I understand correctly, for the the cooling costs. Yeah, yeah, the cooling costs, and then the you know the balance of uh, latency, the delay in transferring data, um, and the kind of you know now we all have you know now Facebook isn't. It doesn't just need to be kind of close. Like now, we all have our Facebook back pages, you know, our deep storage. <laughs> so I think there's the recognition in a lot of these companies that that you can go farther away and and with a little bit thinner connections from a data standpoint for some of your some of your cloud needs, rather than uh, an impulse a few years ago that everything had to be in the region in order to to be whatever you know, x number of milliseconds away without any kind of delay. That transition seems seems to be happening. Let me ask you one final question as we wrap up, and that's if you had to direct people to go to one geographic place where the internet is to check it out and do a tour, uh, what might it be? Like actually, as a tourist, like where if you wanted to go look at things, should you go see it, or where kind of you know spiritually would be the it would be the? Uh, I think it's kind of it's kind of an open question because I mean you went and actually saw the landing sites for the transcontinental cables. I think you visited uh, in Amsterdam, didn't you? The the IXP there, which is one of the largest in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, what would you direct people if they could go check it out? I mean, let's just say hypothetically, if they could have a higher level of access than just a tourist. Uh, okay. Hypothetically, if you could have a higher level of access than just a tourist, I, I do think the. Uh, the one of the the most satisfying spots uh, on the internet sort of tourist uh, tourist route um, is the the ninth floor of 60 Hudson Street in New York. Um, you know, it's it's the that's where the the uh, the meet me room, the uh, interconnection point um, that Telex operates is there. You know, sort of unabashedly one of the kind of major transit points between Europe and, and North America. Um, it's been spread out for security reasons a little bit, but that still is kind of the heart of things. Um, it's an old Western Union Telegraph building, uh, you know, so you you kind of have the sense of of once infrastructure is in place, it doesn't move. Uh, you know, once you know once you know networks go to where networks are, um, 
and um and you just you for me it just it does it's it's as much of a kind of uh you know as much of a kind of hinge in the physical um infrastructure of the internet as anywhere um the f- facebook data center in prineville oregon is also a pretty great spot um i mean it's a it's a good looking building and it's a kind of my it, it it's it acknowledges that it, it is a monument rather than trying to just look like nothing and you know, hide, you know, like a penitentiary. The 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 data centers there are are, are bigger than you would expect, and in some ways more dramatic than you would expect. Um, and though that Prineville, you can just kind of, I mean, both buildings you can just kind of drive up to. Um, both buildings are actually are not impossible to get into, at least if you're in the business. Uh, okay. So I think um, you know, Telex is happy to show off the fact that they are brag about and show off this as an important internet meeting place, particularly if you're a network administrator who might be a customer. So great. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and share with us some of your experiences. Uh, thanks for having me. It's exciting to reach out to the municipal fiber community as well. It's such a key part of things. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think as we see these models develop, um, you know, I keep hoping this will be the the beginning of something major where uh, many more cities will have a municipal network as one of the options of the overlapping networks that we need. We'll say it has to happen. I really hope it does. <laughs> so, Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. That was Chris and Andrew Blum, the author of Tubes, Journey to the Center of the Internet. We highly recommend his book. Go to your independent bookseller, not Amazon, and pick it up if you don't already have a copy. Send us your ideas for future broadcasts. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. You can follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. You can also follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you, Kathleen Martin, for the new music, Player vs. Player, licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 187 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>